This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Okay, um, welcome back. I'm uh, Eric Kaufman, Vice President of ASIN. Uh, so welcome to the final plenary of this 23rd annual ASIN conference. Um, I'm just going to, I know at this, this time sometimes the blood sugar levels are falling, but luckily we have quite a, what I think is a very exciting uh, final plenary. Uh, we'll just begin with uh, Charles King. Um, and Charles King is Professor of International Affairs and Government at Georgetown University in Washington, uh, where he previously served as Chairman of the Faculty of the Edmund Walsh School of Foreign Service. He's the author of five books on European history and politics, including uh, most recently Odessa, Genius and Death in a City of Dreams, uh, that's W.W. W. Norton 2011, which received the National Jewish Book Award. Uh, also, The Ghost of Freedom, A History of the Caucasus, Oxford University Press 2008. Uh, the Black Sea, A History, sounds like a big topic. Uh, <laughs> uh, also, also Oxford University Press uh, 2004. And if he lectures widely on Eastern Europe, social violence and ethnic politics, and has also done a lot of media work, I see here, uh, including CNN, uh, National Public Radio in the US, uh, the BBC, the History Channel, and I see MTV. I'm not sure why that's there, but anyway. <laughs> Charles, uh, you have the floor. OK, thanks, thanks very much, Eric. And thanks very much to the, uh, to the organizers. If I say seated, is that OK? I'm meant to say right here. Um, Thanks to the organizers. I'm involved with an organization uh, that cribbed the name of this one and left out the E called ASN, uh, the Association for the Study of Nationalities in New York. And uh, our conference is taking place in about a week's time, so, but I'm very, very pleased to be here. I haven't been to this conference before, and I'm, I'm pleased to participate in it. Uh, the theme of nationalism and revolution has particular resonance in the part of the world that I study and know something about, and that's Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, the former communist world, because of course we're 20 years on, more than 20 years on, from the end of communism in, uh, in the eastern part of Europe, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I think it's worth remembering two decades uh, a little more later, the ways in which the, the two themes of this conference were particularly intertwined in that context. But it's probably also worth reminding ourselves at the, at the beginning of our reflection, though, about the way in which that wasn't the case 20 years ago. Because if you go back to the beginning of the transformations in 1989, the dominant narratives at the time were not national ones and certainly not revolutionary ones. They were about human rights. They were about a return to Europe. They were about healing the divisions of the Cold War. But I think across the region, the kind of the alchemy of time, if you like, has transformed the way we think about these events and uh, look at these events. In fact, across the former communist region, almost without exception, the events of the late 1980s and the early 1990s are perceived and they're taught and critically they're memorialized as national revolutions. They're seen as revolutions that had a national flavor to them. 
we can kind of go through the list and think about the various categories of countries that now think of their recent past as involving national revolutions. The list is quite substantial. Countries that were, for example, occupied by Soviet troops after the Second World War, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia as it was then, or occupied during the war, the three Baltic states, uh, more ambiguously uh, Bulgaria after the war, more ambiguously still Moldova at the beginning of the war. Uh, 1989 uh, and 1991 for all of these countries was about throwing off the foreign yoke. It was about reinstating a kind of sovereignty that had been lost uh, the better part of a century uh, before. For countries even that had absolutely no Soviet troops on their territory, but were still communists, uh, in 1989, Yugoslavia, Albania, even Romania, from which the last Soviet troops had exited already in 1958, uh, the national and revolutionary were no less pronounced than the countries that had Soviet troops on their ter territory. In fact, you could have a national revolution, it turns out, without having anyone to revolt against. Um, but the way in which these things are memorialized is still uh, the same. In fact, if you go to uh, Roman the Romanian official parliamentary report on the history of communism, because the Romanian parliament drafted and adopted an official report on their communist past, a not particularly rare instance of the government deciding that it needed to have an official view on history, the Romanians denounced, quote, the foreign and alien influence that they overthrew in December of 1989. Regardless of the fact that not a single foreign or alien person was actually involved in promoting and perpetuating communism in that country by December of 1989. In Yugoslavia, of course, Perhaps most famously, we have a whole series of cascading national revolutions from Slovenia to Kosovo beginning in the summer of 1991, and uh, depending on your view, uh, perhaps not even finished there yet. In Albania, waves of patriotism followed uh, uh, the uh, treatment of Al ethnic Albanians in Macedonia and in uh, Kosovo, Kosovo, that became catalysts for events in Albania itself. And I've already mentioned, of course, the Romanian uh, case, where even though uh, Romanian, Romania looked the most revolutionary in a classic kind of sense, with uh, tanks in the streets and the dictator and his wife executed on Christmas Day 1989, those events are now remembered not as regicide, but as national revolution. Across the Soviet Union, a similar kind of thing obtains. The idea of throwing off the Russian yoke uh, has now become equally a part of the way in which those events are remembered. It's true of countries such as Ukraine uh, that witnessed relatively high levels of popular mobilization in the very late 80s and the early 1990s, where you might say there was a kind of rev revolutionary moment and a national moment at the same time, but it's equally true of countries that had virtually no popular mobilization in that period. Countries such as Kazakhstan uh, that exited the Soviet Union really quite peacefully uh, as a result of what we might call uh, an intra-elite pact, but had very little in the way of popular popular mobilization, unlike in Ukraine, Baltic Republic. So in there too, the past is thought of in national and revolutionary terms. In fact, if you look at the declarations of independence of all of the countries that emerged as new countries, not just newly sovereign entities, 
but new countries onto the, the map of the international system after uh, 1991, there is only one of them that doesn't refer to the long history of statehood, the long history of nationness, and in some ways the revolutionary, although the term is not used, the revolutionary nature of uh, their uh, recreated, redefined independence. The one is, of course, Kosovo, which stands out as a bizarre document in the history of nationalism in claiming that it has absolutely no precedent or um, absolutely no um, uh, impact on any other national revolutionary movement. Of course, that document was drafted in Washington uh, before it was drafted in Pristina, and so that may explain uh, why it's a rather odd, odd thing. All of the others, of course, refer to their long history of nationhood, statehood, and, and what have you. This is also true, my last category of countries, it's also true even for the national revolutions that didn't quite succeed as much as they might have liked. Those ambiguous countries, Transnistria, Abkhazia, Nagorno-Karabakh, South Ossetia, and earlier on in the 1990s, Chechnya, that had their own national revolutions, or attempted national revolutions of a sort, but haven't quite attained the level of either international recognition or real sovereignty that uh, the countries that emerged from the Soviet Union gained seats at the United Nations uh, had. These things still matter, though. All of the issues I've just been talking about have very contemporary relevance. You may not have caught this in the news yesterday, but the, the state legislature of Maine in the United States just recognized the independence of Nagorno-Karabakh um, yesterday, um, calling on the uh, United States federal government to follow suit. I would be surprised if most of the state legislators could find Bernard Karabakh, but there's a very, very good lobby working in all the U.S. states to make sure that happened. Uh, all of this, I think, points to what to me is really one of the great ironies of the post-communist um, experience, and that is the very way in which post-communist governments and their historians and their school teachers now remember what happened uh, 20 plus years ago. This is not at all the way events were thought about as, thought of at the time, at least uniformly across the region, nor were the themes of nationalism and revolution critical to the literature on the communist world before 1989. Our retrospective history, in a way, is very different from the history as it was actually lived, or the prospective view of what was likely to happen before 1989 itself. The, even the idea of revolution was broadly discredited. It was thought when it was used, it was thought to be mainly uh, a, a fixture of communist propaganda, described no real uh, political activities on the ground. Um, and the national question seemed, in some ways, at least for many political scientists in the 1970s and 1980s, the national question seemed to have been solved. Uh, there was more, much more of a focus, I think, among the social scientists who looked at this part of the world, much more of a focus on party insiders, on foreign policy differentiation, on economic development, and other themes uh, that animated politics, economic, social life, in the communist world at the, question, at the time. So I'd like to turn to a couple of key questions that flow from this central irony, if you like, and spend the rest of the time uh, exploring them. First of all, where did this nationalist and revolutionary idea come from? Where, 
how was it the case that we came to think of the events of uh, 89 to 91 in these terms? And secondly, if nationalism and revolution really were so important, why, in fact, has nationalist politics after the end of communism been what I would call impoverished? Another way of saying that is, why has it been so tame by comparison in recent years? You will say that in the wake of Yugoslavia and the wars in Chechnya, it was hardly tame, but I'll try to give you a, 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 a clear statement of what I mean by the constrained and channeled nature of nationalist politics in the post-communist world in, in a moment. I certainly don't mean to, to downplay the tragedy wrought by all of those, uh, all of those events, and I try to, to explain what I mean by channeled and contained in a few moments. My answer to both of these questions, I think, has to do a lot with the particular context of communism and the particular context of the Soviet state as well, if we take a slightly narrower perspective on this. It was precisely the intersection of revolutionism, if you like, and nationalism that helped spark the anti-communist rebellions. But it was also that communist experience itself that determined the shape of nationalist politics afterward. There has been, in other words, a very long shadow to communism. In, in this part of the world. And if we can apply sort of the lesson of, of other revolutions, I think, other non-nationalist revolutions, any revolution is, of course, haunted by the ghosts of what came before it. And I think this is very evident in the way that national politics has played out, nationalist politics has played out in, in Eastern Europe and Eurasia. So let me make a couple of related points on, on this score. First of all, it's very important to remember, I think, the way in which the communist experience territorialized the idea of ethnicity, or in most of the languages of the region, what we would call nationality, and placed those territorialized versions of personal and group identity in a very clear hierarchy. Um, not all versions of nationalism do this, of course. Not all state approaches to nationalism do this, of course. But part of the Leninist legacy, crafted in the early years of the Soviet Union and then transported uh, modally, if you like, modularly, uh, to other communist states, was to do precisely this, to fuse territory and uh, group identity, and then to place, place those territorialized identities into a hierarchy. Higher, more developed, lower, less developed nations and peoples. This was, in fact, one of the governing technologies that communists shared across the region, and shared even though they were very, very different in lots of other versions of the way that they approached the task of governance. Communism, we now understand, was, of course, not just one thing uh, across the entire region. There were as many versions of communism as there were communist states when it came to communism as a lived social political uh, system. The version of Yugoslavia, very different from Romania, very different still, of course, from the Soviet Union. But the communist or Leninist solution to national grievances was what we might call a kind of faux decentralization. It was to create ethno-federal or ethno-territorial institutions as a way of buying off peripheral elites, while also centralizing 
the real levers of political control within a highly centralized, highly hierarchical uh, communist part. Even in instances in which the party itself was notionally federalized, as in the Soviet Union, as in Yugoslavia, it still had uh, highly centralized elements to it. This, over time, turned out to be a profound legacy, it seems to me, because it had the impact of channeling ethnic grievances into very specific questions about territorial control and very specific questions about hierarchies. In fact, if we just review the history for a moment, we have a tendency to say that the communist states that broke up after 1991, the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, somehow broke up along ethnic lines. But with a moment's reflection, that's of course plainly false. They didn't break up along ethnic lines. They broke up along the ethno-territorial or federal lines that the state had created. Rather amazing when we think about this being uh, a region of vast ethno-national dispute and ethno-national conflict, the things that in fact came out of all of those conflicts were the, the ethno-federal units, precisely the ethno-federal units created by uh, the Soviet or communist uh, states themselves. There's only one exception to that rule, and that's, of course, Transnistria in Moldova, which had no previous ethno-territorial or ethno-federal identity um, in, in the Soviet period. But all the rest of them, the 15 Union Republics, and then sub-Union Republics, such as uh, Chechnya, a failed effort uh, to create uh, uh, an independent state, Nagorno-Karabakh, South Ossetia, Abkhazia, and others uh, certainly did, and the same point goes for uh, for uh, the Yugoslav uh, breakup as well. Remarkable, then, that this long shadow of something crafted by a revolutionary state should, in fact, become the national form in which, uh, in which those states themselves uh, broke up. Secondly, because of the highly institutionalized nature of, of, of ethnic or national politics, that is, ethnic politics was about grabbing institutions, controlling actual institutions. Uh, the most visible arenas of ethnic politics after the communist period also tend to be about institutional control. In terms of the universe of things that we might study if we were studying ethnic politics in the post-communist world, it's remarkable that the thing we mainly study still is how individuals and groups do being ethnic in institutional terms. Think for a moment, for those of you who sort of work on this part of the world, if you can cast your mind to what people in other parts of the world here at this conference study, uh, it's remarkable how few of those things we actually look at in the post-communist world. The behavior of ethnic political parties, for example. Precisely because there are very few ethnic political parties in the post-communist world. They're, they simply don't exist in the level that you might expect them in a place that has a surfeit of ethnicity or nationalism. Uh, the politics of prejudice or racism or political framing in ethnic terms. Redistributive politics among privileged ethnic elites. The power of ethnic networks. Themes that might be very, very important, for example, in the study of sub-Saharan African politics tend not to be the focus of our attention in the post-communist world, with some exceptions. But the reason for that is because 
that kind of ethnic politics doesn't exist in the post-communist world to the degree and to the level that I think it exists in other parts of the world. The odd conclusion we might come to then is that post-communist politics actually has very little to do with ethnic politics in the way that we understand it in most other parts of the world. It has a great deal to do with ethno-territorial politics, this channeled or institutionalized form of ethno-national politics, but not ethnic politics as we would, as we would often understand it elsewhere. In fact, there's even a phrase that, that students of the former communist world use all the time to describe the nature of, ethno, uh, of ethnic politics that you very rarely hear used in other parts of the world. And that's the term titular, or titularity. That is, does your ethnic group have a relationship to a defined piece of territory? Are you a titular national group with your own state-designated homeland? That idea, that connection again between identity and territory, still has a profound influence on how people do being ethnic in this in this part of the world. In fact, some recent fascinating work by uh, by Mikhail Alexeyev uh, from California has shown that <coughs> Russian attitudes toward their own ethnic minorities are conditioned by whether those ethnic minorities have titular status or not. Which is to say, the, 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 the higher the relationship between, or the closer the relationship between ethnic identity and actual territorial control, the more suspicious ethnic Russians are of that particular minority. And we might spin out the reasons for that. They're considered to be more inimical to the Russian state, the, the threat of their of being able to mobilize is greater. But that concept of titularity itself still plays a very important role. And that, too, is something bequeathed by the Soviet or, or communist experience. Now, what I think all of this does for us, in a way, is kind of leave us with um, some good news and some bad news. The good news, in a way, is that territorialization, I think, constrained ethnicity or nationalism and it constrained the expansion of ethnic politics. It made ethnic politics in the post-revolutionary environment uh, of 1989 and 1991 predictable. Why predictable? Well, in fact, again, if we go back to history, the first thing that mobilized ethnic elites demanded in virtually every case, the first thing that mobilized ethnic elites demanded was not secession was not uh, genocide against a perceived uh, oppressor or against an ethnic minority. The first thing that they demanded was that their ethno-territorial unit move up one notch in the ethnic hierarchy. This is true of Chechnya. They wanted to go from being an autonomous republic to being a republic, not being independent, but being a republic of uh, the Russian Federation. It's true. Uh, of Kosovo, it's true of lots of other entities that eventually, of course, spun out from uh, the communist federal states. And that's a remarkable bit of history that I think we often overlook. Secessionist movements began, not as secessionist movements, but as a desire simply to move up one notch in this ethno-federal hierarchy that had been uh, created by the communist states. So in a region with many different ethnic groups, 
We've all seen uh, the Jackson Pollock map of the Caucasus and the Balkans and whatever. It looks like somebody just throws paint on a white on a white board, and that's meant to show you. When people show you those maps, it's meant to show you. Well, of course, these places are have been a mess. I mean, how could they not be a mess with so many different colors? They can't even get the color of the lines. Um, but what I think those those maps misstate is again the way in which ethnicity is actually challenged by these. Uh, by these uh, uh, communist regimes. So that's in a way the, the good news. The bad news is, of course, that precisely the way they were channeled ended up being the most inimical for the stability of the state itself. Uh, the whole question of ethno-territorial control was put front and center uh, by uh, these popular mobilization movements in the late 80s and the early 1990s. There was no sort of movement for greater representation of ethnic minorities in parliaments, precisely because the parliaments were, uh, were weak and, and undemocratic. There was no movement, large scale, across the region uh, for precisely the other forms of ethnic politics that we might look for in other, in other entities. And I think that has remained the same uh, in Eastern Europe and Eurasia up to this uh, point. What I think that means in the end is that the arenas of national politics in this part of the world are likely to continue to be revolutionary in that sense. They're, they're likely to continue to take that form of territorializing identity, thinking about hierarchy, and in the end, proving particularly inimical to the boundaries of states as they exist now. Within Russia itself, one only need look at the North Caucasus and the Volga region, where so many of the debates of the very late 1980s, I think, are being played out again. Questions of territorial control, of hierarchy, of the relationship between regional federal entities and uh, the federal sector. Uh, the actors in all of these places are also repeating exactly the same kinds uh, of, uh, of, repeating exactly the same kind of discourse, the same kind of language that you saw uh, used in the late uh, 80s and the, uh, and, and the early 1990s. And in fact, it wouldn't be terribly surprising that uh, to see in a few years elites on these peripheries in Russia, particularly in Russia, already writing their future histories in terms of their own national revolution. The people in the North Caucasus, the Volga region, and elsewhere looking back on the second decade of the 2000s, saying, remember the time when we also began our own national revolution against the centralized and overbearing state. Thanks, I'll stop there. Thank you.